0: This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark.
1: Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Wolfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We had the pleasure of speaking with Alan Berman, a coin dealer who specializes in papal material and also has his own little kingdom, which we'll discuss later in the episode. We also talk about the currency of micronations in addition to our usual bevy of numismatic content.
2: You know, I kind of like the idea of having a little kingdom. And this podcast is sort of like our own little kingdom, right, Chris? So sure.
1: We're we're, we're the co-rulers of our podcast kingdom.
2: Yes, podcastia. So uh, (laughs) we thank you for being residents, if you will, choosing to dwell with us every week in our podcast kingdom. We thank you for that and implore you, if you have not yet, please subscribe so that we can bring more horrible puns and jokes like that. That you just heard uh, in in coming weeks. Let's talk about those micronations, though. That's one of my favorite topics numismatically because there's actually an organization. I don't know if it still exists to to some degree, but the Unrecognized States Numismatic Society. There, are, there are <laughs> I love that. There are all manner of places. The micronation is is a term that can be that can apply to a actual physical location that somebody has sort of claimed and said this is you know we're going to issue coins in the name of this kingdom. Uh, one example, probably the most prominent example, is the Hut River Province in Australia. Back in the seventies, uh, a family took this land. They, through some interpretation of Australian law, they decided that they could claim. Sovereignty over this land, and as such, they issued passports and stamps and, and coins. And there's even uh, the family continues to this day to issue coins and other collectibles for Hut River Province. Nowhere near the abundance that were issued, say, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I think there was like a series of um, Gulf War and President Clinton and some other coins from Hut River in, ni- in the 90s that were, you know. Not deluge, but they were certainly available. Another place like that is Sealand, which is a
1: yeah in uh, in um, right off the coast of the UK, right? Yes,
2: yes. And actually, if if you've seen the movie Pirate Radio, that's based in Sealand. Oh, that is, isn't it? Yeah, this
1: was. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I guess I guess you're right that it does revolve around Sealand.
2: And you know, it's out in the Channel or whatever, and you know, they said it was all out. Beyond territorial borders, waters, whatever, and uh, this again, this family claimed the land or the, as this case, a an abandoned oil rig, I believe, that was used in World War II. So you know, they, these are
1: real physical locations that people have claimed ownership over, so to speak, and sort of claim their independence from other and sovereign, yes. other sovereign nations, sort of declaring their own sovereignty, even if it's. You know, just a little platform sitting out in the ocean. Some of these entities issue their own currency, whether they commission private mints or private printers, or if they just produce their own currency to be used, which to me doesn't really, it doesn't seem like it would have any usefulness in actual commerce between (laughs) micro nations and their, uh, let's call them host states. But I think it's more just as to try to claim legitimacy to say, well, we we have issued our own currency. It's sort of absolutely, it, it, it's, but it's currency as statecraft, except you know, micro statecraft.
2: Absolutely, it's also uh, some of these places will allow tourists to come. Right, you know, you can show up, and sometimes it depends on you know, s- some of this is, uh, I think, happened more so. Earlier on in the realm of of these places back in the seventies and eighties, but you know you could show up and and actually buy the money or the passport at a physical location, not so much Sealand because you know, it's, it's darn near inaccessible.
1: Interestingly, I, I just looked into it. Sealand actually was not an oil rig; it was interestingly a uh, an anti aircraft gun emplacement okay. originally. Okay. I guess they they constructed little turrets. Uh, on these platforms in the ocean, and I guess during World War II, I gather the British government created a bunch of them. And I guess yeah, beginning in the sixties, this- I guess they seized it for a pirate radio broadcasts.
2: Yeah, thank you for the correction. We don't certainly sure. don't want to have misinformation. But uh, so those, you know, that's the physical dwelling. Then you have places yeah. that exist only in the mind of somebody, and that's a place like Bermania. And I can't mm-hmm. help but think of the Marx Brothers movie. Duck Soup, where uh, Groucho is the leader of Fredonia, and these people are, Hail, Hail, Fredonia, Land of the Free. Alan has created this um, story, or stories, multiple stories, surrounding the origins of this fictional nation state. That of course of of which he is the head and his wife
1: is the queen and you know the son is the prince and he apparently there apparently Burmania has a number of citizens.
2: Yes, you you can uh, become an honorary citizen. It is not easy. Uh, it is not. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that there's any cost. I think it's just you might have to um, be generous as far as picking up the tab or something. I don't know. It's it, it's <laughs> you know. Uh, but they do have they do have annual celebrations at the New York international numismatic convention, the Saturday night of the show, there's a, a small gathering for those subjects and those would be subjects and those who would subject themselves to the gathering. <laughs> I I've actually it's been to one of those. Dope. It's, it's pretty fun. Uh, there's oh, it seems like a great time. There, there's baklava. Usually there's a, a historical, uh, there's always a historical presentation expanding and exploring the, the nation of Burmania's, uh, just storied history, so you know it, it is fun. It is an iteration of um, you know blending of the hobby with with history and being creative. It's not for well, everybody. Some I, I know some people sort of poo poo it or look down upon it. But
1: um, well, and hey, you know what? I'll say this: anywhere I'll swear allegiance to pretty much anything if there's good baklava involved. <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll go to some pretty extraordinary lengths for that. And I'll say this: there are also some pretty interesting numismatic and ex numic items associated with Burmania. I oh, yes. actually recently acquired a Burmanian horse cart token, um, which apparently I guess Burmania at one time or another had a horse. I'll have to try to dig up the history sheet of the uh, the, the horse carts and, and the horse of Burmania. I'll have to dig that up. But I did acquire a Burmanian horse cart token, which was uh, minted by our friends at the Osborne Mint. One of our very first interviews was with a representative, yeah, Ken, uh, Ken Shaner, yeah. from the Osborne Mint, and and when he when Alan mentioned to me that the they'd been struck there. I said, hey, that's kind of cool. I actually, I know a little something about the Osborne Mint. Yeah, so and I've been to there the Osborne
2: some... Mint. It's it's pretty fun. Pretty. Neat.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's very cool. So th- I guess the point being that there are all kinds of ways that you could collect the currency of micronations, and you wouldn't even necessarily have to c- to collect it by micronation. If, for example, you found that a couple of micronations, or at least one, in the case of Burmania. Uh, had contracted the Osborne Mint and you're interested in Osborne Mint material, then, you know, that would be one avenue or sort of one theme by which you could collect some of this material. One of the most popular
2: ways of collecting coins of Micronations is to collect one from each. Yep. You, know, you could get a conch dollar from Key West. I have one of those. I found that in the last couple of years Reasonably priced. I was thrilled to find it. they were made in like 1972, 73. Key West itself, I've never been there. I have a friend who lives there. They're known for their independence streak of independence, if you will. Very much love the island home and venerate it. You know more so. I, I think they're, they're Key Westers before they're Floridians. Right? There was a series of. I think they're like pewter. They're they're sort of crudely made. But they have the conch, the animal, the shell, you know, what you would expect from a tropical location on the design. My favorite, though, is the series from Purple Shaft to Land. This was a a satirical set. I love that. Issued by a coin dealer. The name escapes me at the moment, but we're going to provide links in the show notes because I've written about this before. Uh, The dealer was surveying the numismatic landscape in the early 70s and decided to satirize just the overabundance at the time now we look back and go <laughs> but uh, you know then what what he saw is the overabundance of commemorative only issues and so he created this series from purple shaft to land multiple denominations a twist a nudge I can't think of some of the other, but, yeah. but there, there's a cute story behind it. And he he talks about how these coins can never lose value because they're worthless to begin with. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I found at the, uh, Michigan state, show in 2018 in november 2018 i found a couple pieces of those and and got
1: them then I've, I've had a couple other pieces before then uh and most of this material is fairly accessible as well i mean i, I don't think m- most micronation currencies don't command massive premiums in the market do they
2: no and i mean there are some that are i won't say unique but nearly so pretty rare in in gold but you don't have to go Uh, For the gold, you can certainly look for the silver or the uh, base metal stuff. And you can put together a nice collection, I think a representative collection of more than a dozen micronations for $250 and, and probably, you know, a couple dozen coins for sure. And if you expanded that to five hundred dollars, you could get quite an array. You know, get a piece from Hut River, get get something from Sealand, get something from Purple Shafty Land, Burmania. They're easy to find. Buck Island is another piece I found at a local
1: show. One buck. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of amazing when you consider most of these items, as you mentioned, have relatively small mintages, at least as compared to issues of more I don't want to say more legitimate nations, but that, that seems like well, the But, uh, but those, like those right. more, more powerful nations,
2: those nations uh, recognized by the United Nations, you know, for <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, more, you're not going to more, find more sea land official, on more, the, uh, more
1: powerful, how, however you want to conceptualize it. It seems like a lot of these issues are relatively rare compared to, you know, traditional national coin issues. And they sort of have circulated to shows, you know, that might be very far from their point of origin, whether coin shows or in the hands of coin dealers, you know, who are quite far flung, like I said, from, you know, from where the, the nation is or where the material was produced. I think that is kind of interesting. I mean, in a way, you know, it's it's getting the word out to a, a broader audience than you might normally expect sure. about your micro nation. Yeah, and but, it also and it offers an interesting sort of quirky and accessible collectible. So it's
2: fun material. They absolutely are interesting and quirky and fun. But as you note, know, you know, they are intended for collectors uh, generally. And um, I, I even have a set of paper money from. Hut River that I got. You know, I figured I write about it or something at some point. These are geared to collectors, but as you say, I like micro statecraft, <laughs> if you will. So that's the Micronations discussion. Let's go yeah. talk about some rare coins that are from a Fairly legitimate nation, I would say, the United States. That's what's happening <laughs> this week in history. We go yeah. from we go from the unofficial sort of side of things to the very official. What was happening this week in numismatic history, Chris? We're early March, in the past. It's something we've talked about before. Uh, I won't keep you in suspense any longer because it was. On March 3rd, 1835, that Congress established the branch mints at Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and New Orleans. That was an auspicious day because that helped give new minting authority and power for the young, then, you know, nation barely 50 years old. That has led to the creation of some very prized collectibles. I know there are specialists who who just do branch mint stuff, right? And and most of that's gold,
1: right? So the Charlotte and Dahlonega gold issues are very rare, and if you look at their catalog values, they are very valuable. You can find even even gold dollars and and you know lower denomination gold coins, which are usually fairly accessible price wise. You're basically paying for the precious metal. Which is, you know, gold dollars and and quarter eagles and other low denomination gold coins don't have a lot of metal in them. They're fairly small coins. So the actual – your actual gold weight on those coins isn't very high. So paying for the gold and usually a modest numismatic premium above their intrinsic value, sometimes those lower denomination gold coins are some of the most accessible – Federally issued gold that people can purchase. But in the case of in, Charlotte in, and Dahlonega. Yeah,
2: when you're, you're talking. It's, those, it's a totally different game. Yeah, you're talking those struck at, say, Philadelphia that are common. Yeah. And yeah. In, Philadelphia in mint piece, then to be
1: very common. But some branch mint pieces are very, very rare. And some of them go for a huge amount of money, even though they're you know, fairly diminutive in size, they are very, very rare. So, yes. So they can go for big money.
2: So that that is why um of the things that happened this week in history, that is uh probably the most interesting and exciting to myself. Oh, absolutely.
1: Well and also just the history of the mints, even in the context of the Civil War. I mean the Confederacy seized all of them and then, you know, the New Orleans mint was eventually liberated. But, you know, the Charlotte and Dahlonega mints didn't end up surviving the Civil War. They just weren't reopened. So You know, it's they play a really interesting role in the history in the sort of early history of the U.S. mint. And they also what's even more interesting is, you know, the uh, establishment of mints to process gold finds was one of many reasons um, that a lot of native tribes were displaced and that a lot of the Southeastern colonization that occurred in the, you know, in the early 19th century a lot of that colonization, or at least some of it, had to do with uh, you know chasing these these gold deposits and trying to find precious metals in these uh, southeastern uh, regions. So, and then plus. Personally, I just, I love the history of the New Orleans Mint. I have a lot of New Orleans Mint pieces in my own collection. And New Orleans has always had a very colorful history. Even today, it's it's a beautiful city, very fun to poke around. And the history of the New Orleans Mint is, is really interesting and, and yeah. plays uh, into the history of that city. So let's stick with
2: some Southern history from the early 1800s, early to mid-1800s. This week in coin world history, we're going back to 1991. As you note, that was when uh, Allen's book on papal coinage was produced. What was in the news in 1991? And that involved a Southerner. Well, interestingly in the March 6th, uh, 1991 edition of Coin World, you have the front page has two stories. One of which is students want Andrew Jackson off notes. They suggest Frederick Douglass replace the slave owner. So, you know, Andrew Jackson, uh, president, fighter, war hero, but certainly has a history colored by his involvement with the Native Americans and other minorities. So, Paul Joke's story has a, is a very compelling lead appalled by the slave dealing Indian hating and other personality traits of former president, Andrew Jackson uncovered during a research project, a gifted class of plantation, Florida eighth graders has mounted a grassroots campaign to boot old hickory off the face of the $20 federal reserve note. So hmm. th- this goes into all of the story, Yeah. The, the story behind this movement, it's, um, Obviously unsuccessful. This has been a much-discussed topic since 1991, before 1991. You even have, uh, in modern times, the uh, slave hero or uh, liberator Harriet Tubman has been slated to take Jackson's place on notes. And then there was the current administration's decision to not uh, to delay that removal and the way that was even handled with... Um, keeping Jackson on a note, making him smaller. It's been a very uh, chaotic process. And
1: and in response to that sort of, I think, kerfuffle would be a a fairly delicate way to put it. I
2: love it. I love the word (laughs) kerfuffle.
1: (laughs) In in response though, um, or at, at least possibly in response, there's been sort of a subsequent development in the story of Harriet Tubman's inclusion on currency of any kind. And that's that Uh, A bill was recently introduced uh, to the House of Representatives that uh, if passed, it it was just introduced a couple weeks uh, before time of recording, was introduced that if enacted, if it's signed into law by the president, would uh, place Harriet Tubman on a series of commemorative coins to be released in 2022, honoring the 200th anniversary of her birth. The coins would be a $5 half eagle, you know, a $5 gold coin, uh, a silver dollar, and a clad half dollar, which that's a pretty common compositions and denominations that are often – Uh, used for commemorative coin series, uh, at least in in recent years. What's interesting is it's not clear whether or not it's commemorating the precise anniversary of Tubman's birth. I've seen different sources which have cited uh, her birth between 1820 and 1822, So it's possible that they will be commemorating the almost 200th anniversary, a little past the 200th anniversary by the time the coins are struck and issued, though they might in fact be commemorating the exact bicentennial of her birth. Yeah,
2: record-keeping especially for African-Americans back then wasn't – Well,
1: slaves. I mean they they didn't – there was no real reason to – I I mean there's no – economic reason for slave owners to know exactly when their you know enslaved laborers were born. So her birth date is not totally clear. I've heard 1820, I've heard 1822, but it's not totally clear that this legislation was introduced in response to the Trump administration's decision to delay Tubman's inclusion on the $20 Federal Reserve note. So it's not totally clear that it's in response, but it is interesting that an effort to place Tubman on currency, which... I would argue there's actually an interesting leftist criticism to be made of including Tubman, uh, a figure from the history of of slavery and, and a significant abolitionist figure on coins, considering sort of the underpinnings, the capitalist underpinnings of slavery as an institution. It's interesting to consider whether Tubman, first of all, would see her inclusion on currency as being valuable. And more than that, whether it's appropriate to include a figure of someone who is victimized by a, a brutal and extreme incarnation of capitalism on coins that themselves are sort of a part of the capitalist system of exchange. So there's an interesting criticism to be made. I, I think that there's there's debate certainly to be had on either side of that question. But despite any misgivings of, of people of any political ilk, uh, it seems that efforts to include Tubanon currency are ongoing.
2: Absolutely. So you talk about coinage as as um, representative of a time and a place and propaganda and all that. That works well with our answer of our trivia question, actually, and the the trivia question for this week. So last week we asked about the Judea Capta coin. What is a Judea Capta coin? You know, some of that is sort of given away in
1: the the name of the coin, but it's an expert level question. Do you know? I do. They're commemorative Roman coins that were struck under the reign of Emperor Vespasian, Vespasian, I've heard it pronounced different ways. I'm sure I butchered it. Celebrating the recapture of Judea and the destruction of the Jewish Second Temple.
2: Yes, yes, you got it. You nailed it. So we talked about micronations. There was one another one that we didn't mention that I we should have mentioned perhaps, one of my favorites cute designs are the coins of Lundy these are unofficial issues mm. from the oh, island from the island of Lundy in the Bristol Channel off the west coast of England so two bronze coins the half puffin and one puffin were issued by and feature a portrait of Martin Cole's Harmon who owned the island and was responsible for the issue now the trick is the the first coins that were made for Martin Cole's Harmon for Lundy and they got him in trouble when were they issued what were the coins dated that's the trivia question
1: for this week. And a great trivia question. I I love the the Lundy Puffin and Half Puffin coins. I think that they're a lot of fun. Yes. So So we'll have the
2: answer to that next week. You can chime in, contact us, Facebook, whatever. But that is the trivia question for this week and it is a fitting note to segue to our interview with Alan Berman because we do discuss – the Micronations issues, as well as some other fun stuff, and just the allure of collecting world coins. I think that cannot be understated. Uh, We talk about the U.S. stuff a lot, but we're both, Chris and I, both love world coins. Of course, I write about them all the time, and uh, so hopefully this interview is elucidating and
1: interesting. Uh, and it's always just fun to talk to somebody who's not only passionate about coins, but is passionate about the communities that can be created around coin collecting. So it was a wonderful interview, and we really hope that you enjoy it.
2: Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. Chris and I are at the New York International Numismatic Convention, and we're delighted to be joined by Alan Berman. Uh, Mr. Berman is a well-known world coin dealer, but also an author expert in papal coinage. Thank you for being here today, Alan.
3: You're very welcome.
2: So anybody who's been to this show or or any of the major U.S. shows has likely seen you and knows the sort of fun material, uh, affordable and interesting historical world coins that you offer, but they may not be aware of your specialty, which is the papal coinage. Can you talk about your interest in that area, how you got started in that,
3: and we'll go from there. Certainly. The papacy is the single most intact medieval institution uh, that I know of, and I have always had an interest in the Middle Ages. Um, in fact, I am the ANA instructor for medieval, and I write the, the medieval column for the Numismatist. I love the Middle Ages, and the papacy still survives. In addition to that, I love large milk chocolate looking copper coins and there's a large quantity of that material that the papacy struck and the third reason I got involved in papal material is I love baroque art and you know this is basically material not just coins but uh, architecture painting sculpture from the 1600s and you really see a lot of that with papal material
2: Was that interest in medieval history and the Baroque and all that? Is that what brought you into coinage or did this grow out of that?
3: I would say coinage brought me into history. When I was 10 years old, I was a C student in history. I started collecting world coins and became an A student in history. Coins really sort of saved my academic life. Then once I got into it, it just took off. My interest in Baroque art, that did not happen until I was an undergrad And took art history, which was definitely, I'd say, my favorite course. And your introduction to coins,
2: was at 10 years old? Uh, About how many years ago was that?
3: Uh, Well, I just turned 60.
2: Happy birthday. (laughs) And uh, so I know that you uh, when did you transition from that collector phase, though, into the dealing side of things?
3: I have been full time since 1981. However, I did part time work as a cataloger for a few years before that. So I guess late as an undergrad, I I began that transition. Uh, I have not quit collecting, though. Uh, I am still a passionate collector.
1: Papal coinage often makes reference to really fascinating episodes in the history of the Catholic Church as an institution. For example, in 1963, the Sede Vacante um, inscription referenced the vacant seat, the, the yes. vacant papal seat. What are some other instances, both in the Middle Ages and in a more contemporary context, of really interesting episodes of papal history playing out on their coinage?
3: Well, involvement in the papacy trying to negotiate peace. That was certainly mentioned on a number of, of issues, but they also have various biblical scenes on them. You have Noah's Ark uh, sitting on top of a mountain, you have John the Baptist preaching to, you know, to the masses. The Annunciation, you find that, and you find the nativity. All these scenes are depicted on papal coins.
2: And I know uh, from my collecting experience and interest in world coins that there are a lot of the designs that you reference are available on affordable modern stuff, you know, from the 1950s on to now. That is true. What kind of, were some of these themes and stories being told on the earlier coinage?
3: Oh, yes. Yes. You you have a wide variety of these stories in the 1600s, some of it just beginning in the late 1500s. In the 1500s and earlier, most of the images are fairly static. You didn't actually have scenes of things going on too much, certainly not as much in the early 1500s. began a little bit later.
2: For somebody who comes to collect these coins. How are they coming in? Is it somebody who's Catholic and they're looking to celebrate their faith? Is it somebody who's, you know, familiar with the Bible story and is, is looking, you know, it's not somebody that the one country collector,
3: one coin per well, country is going to dive into. The people who cut papal are a great mix. Some of them are faithful Catholics that want to have that as a, a focus of their spirituality, but a great many people are not even Christian, but they love the art. Just papal coins have great art.
2: And there's such a rich history of decades, uh, centuries of
3: of coinage to pursue. papal coins go back at least to the 700s AD. Yeah, so
2: we're 1,300 years. And they're still being made today. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I
3: I have gotten papal coins, Vatican City coins, in my pocket change. Not just in Vatican, but I've also gotten them in pocket change in Italy. They're yeah. legitimate circulating money.
1: That actually segues well into something I was curious about. To what extent did it throughout the centuries and in our present era? To what extent did Vatican coinage circulate, and how did it interact with sort of the Italian economy? If a papal coin should have been someone's change, is it accepted at a shop in Rome or elsewhere in the
3: country? Since Italian unification ended the papal state, then in 1929 it was restored in the Vatican city which is very small there's a monetary convention between Italy and Vatican city and any Vatican coin from that point on was good anywhere in Italy and now of course the uh, Vatican uses euros and you can go and spend a Vatican euro in in Belgium or Finland for that matter
2: yeah however it would be from a from a financial standpoint it would be unwise because so much of the modern Vatican coinage sells at such a premium
3: Yes. Since the Vatican went Euro, there have been almost no Vatican coins actually placed in circulation. Before it went Euro, they made sure that there was a reasonable quantity actually circulating.
2: Yeah. And, and this uh, policy, which was changed about five years ago or seven years ago, led to – there were fights breaking out in the lines to get the Vatican annual sets. I mean the, for a couple years in a row, it was it was very crazy –
3: I'm disappointed to hear that. I did not know about the fights. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. You would not expect, you know, you think of, I mean, San Marino has Serene in the name, not Vatican,
3: but, <laughs> but you know, this, this. Right. Well, San Marino content- has a very similar phenomenon in Correct. terms of the rarity of the Euros. They really have quite a premium.
2: Yeah, the uh, the European Commission uh, stepped in at some point and mandated the Vatican actually issue a small number of coins in circulation at face value. So I think and that
3: legitimatizes the coinage. Yes, so yes. that's a very good thing.
2: Yeah, there were there were fifty cent pieces for several years being issued, but for the most part, you know, for many years in the Euro era, it was all just the sets. Now
3: Right. And to this day, you can actually buy the Uh, 50-euro-cent Vatican pieces in little cards separate from the mint set.
2: Oh, yes, yes. And, and of course, the the Vatican, like so many of the Eurozone countries, can – can and does celebrate up to two circulating commemorative designs every year as well on the two euro. That's a big interest for you in numismatically, the, the Vatican coins, the papal coins What other things, because you did say earlier that you still are a collector, what other things do
3: you collect? At all? Well, I, I want one coin of every monarch that ever lived. Now, I'm sure you would say, well, Alan, you can't do that. That's not possible. The, you know, the Smithsonian couldn't even do that. The whole objective is not to ever finish. I don't want to be 95 years old and suddenly realize my hobby is done. I don't collect investor quality coins. I want coins that I can teach with, just nice middle grade coins that if I'm out in Colorado Springs at summer seminar, I can pass around class and communicate with. I don't invest in coins. I don't think coins are a good investment. They are tokens of history. They give us a frame of reference as to where we stand in civilization. Which
1: monarch are you seeking out right now? Do you pick one out and try to find a specific monarch? Or if you happen upon one you don't already have, do you acquire it?
3: I am not that systematic about it. It might sound very humble, but what I am looking for right now, based on a conversation I had with a a friend with connections in Spain, is I don't have a circulating coin issued during the reign of the new King Philip. In Spain
2: just in the last couple of years.
3: Yes. Brand new king. And I, you know, I still need to get a coin of King Philip. It might only cost one euro, but I want one coin of every monarch and he's a new monarch.
2: You really highlighted the thing to me that I think speaks to the perennial appeal of World Coins, that as a, a sort of a talisman of history. Talk about some of the stories that can bring people into the hobby. What Maybe there's some specific World Coin series that people are, sh- might consider that are accessible. What do you see collectors on the other side of the table, because you're behind the table, what are they getting excited about, and how can we share that passion?
3: Well, a lot of them want their ancestry. That is a very, very common approach. Uh, Another approach is people want to study the evolution of the technology or or the art, as I mentioned, of coinage. You can definitely see a a change in style of art. You can see the Renaissance. You can see the Baroque. You can see the the neoclassical. You can see all sorts of modern art, which I don't completely care for. You can actually see that moving. But what's more exciting to me is – seeing a lot of the political changes manifest on the coinage. Just looking at French Revolution, for example, you see the king first, the inscription is changed from Latin to French. Then, even more dramatic, when the king is removed, they put a tablet on the coin, a simple rectangular tablet that says all men are equal before the law. That is such a great piece of historical evidence for the evolution of civilization. That is exciting. After the Bolshevik revolution. You see on something called the worker ruble, the industrial worker pointing out to the sunrise, uh, pointing out the sunrise to the agrarian peasant who is looking somewhat skeptical. And you find, uh, you know, uh, workers of the world unite. Uh, Again, that's a positive bit of evidence uh, of the changes that are going on politically. You look in Spain uh, in the 1800s, they change it from just king of Spain to constitutional king of Spain. There's so much evidence for the evolution of civilization and, and the coinage.
1: Your discussion of the political evolution, being able to read political history onto the designs and the lettering and the motifs of coinage, you mentioned that you your preference for coins and the coins you like to collect are coins with which you can teach. Outside of a numismatic context, because I think many people who attend the ANA Summer Seminar are people who are already interested in numismatics, what could our industry be doing to use coins as educational devices outside of a numismatic context to try to teach history using coins in a way that might attract new people or a a broader cross-section of people
3: into the hobby. Well, one thing that I am doing consistently is I am putting coins in the hands of teachers and professors. Uh, So many of my customers are actually also collecting in order to teach, and I get such positive feedback from the results. It sort of lights up the classroom. If the teacher is just standing there in front uh, of the classroom, it's just words sometimes pouring over the students. And then suddenly, if the teacher puts a 1500-year-old coin or 1800-year-old Roman coin in the hands of the students while he's trying to tell them about the Roman Empire, it ceases to be just words pouring out of my teacher's face. It becomes something exciting. It really stimulates their interest in the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire is now something real. They're holding something from the Roman Empire.
2: What sort of outlets exist to help further that beyond the sort of singular efforts of one dealer, you know, sort of man-to-man grassroots? I mean, I know there's the History in Your Hands Foundation, but what else is out there and what should be created? What needs to be done?
3: Well, I think that the ANA is encouraging people, the whole idea of National Coin Week. One thing that used to happen... In the 1950s and 60s is banks would actually host displays that volunteer collectors would exhibit and we've gotten away from that we're maybe a little bit too security conscious and I don't see why collectors should be intimidated on doing that they don't have to put their name on an exhibit like that just because they're lending it to a bank and probably the banks are maybe a little bit too concerned about having to provide for security but where we, the dealers and the collectors, can come in is more public exhibits, I think. An average person is just walking by a glass case with a thousand-year-old coin or even a coin from the 1800s from the United States. It's going to make them stop and think and ask.
1: To the extent that you use coins in an educational role and you've lent coins to professors and things like that, what can professional historians who want to enrich a work of economic history, have you seen coins utilized in a in a broad array of historical works, or do you think that other oh, yes. historical works would benefit from a sort of an infusion of numismatics?
3: I, I have certainly seen numism- uh, numismatic evidence used by mainline historians. I will admit, knowing a great many historians, that a lot of them are intimidated by numismatic evidence, and it is up to... The numismatists with one foot in the academic world to share their knowledge with the greater academic community.
1: There's been some anxiety in the industry about uh, a perception that, you know, younger people aren't engaging with the hobby and that, you know, it's becoming a little bit parochial. And it's not, a, it's not a quite a part of the culture in the same way that it used to be. People imagine people collecting, you know, Buffalo nickels in a little, you know, cardboard Whitman album. Is that a concern
3: that you share at all or do you think that – Ever since the 1970s, people have been saying to me, you know, there's no young collectors, no, no young collectors, there's no young collectors. And ever since the 1970s, I've been seeing young collectors every year entering the hobby. It's gloom and doom in words but it doesn't bear reality. I am seeing a great many people who are much younger. Um, I'm being interviewed by two <laughs> younger numismatists – well, I one am.
2: anyway, speak for <laughs> speak for chris
3: <laughs> so i 'm long in the tooth at at forty haven 't been at CoinWorld sixteen years, <laughs> uh, but there are a great many more young collectors than we like to acknowledge
2: I think you 're right in that rego- in, in many respects to that i mean i 've seen so many folks, especially in social media space uh, touching base with coins, using coins as uh, i 've always said that coins. Uh, are the best way to reflect art, history, politics, geography, economics, all of these disciplines. And, uh, you know, your, go by your booth, and that's the best proof there is because you have, you know, 1300s, uh, you know, coins from the 1300s from this ruler in this era, and there's, you know, you get to pick through, and, ooh, this looks really cool, and then you've got a modern Polish Tuzlady, and
3: there's everything in between and beyond. Yeah, and another thing that can be done, and it's not by numismatist per se, is interdisciplinary exhibits at museums are great. I remember just walking in a room at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, seeing displays of uh, armor and seeing a coin depicting someone wearing armor on display with it. I don't know if that particular exhibit is is out there today. Uh, but those kind of interdisciplinary exhibits really spread the word.
2: So let's talk about. We're here in New York. Uh, how big of a show? How important of a show is New New York International for for you? And there's a lot of folks out there that are bidding in auctions and spending tens, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. That's not the case when I come by your table.
3: No, and those kinds of coins represent. A tiny minuscule aspect of the numismatic market. They might gobble up a lot of money but they're not what most people collect at all. The average ancient Roman coin can be had for a single digit so that kind of a level is, is just not representative of most coins being collected today.
2: And probably one of the rarest items on the floor that is eminently affordable are the ever-elusive horse cart tokens from Burmania.
3: Ah, uh, yes. Well, Romania is basically designed to put a smile on people's faces. Uh, It was an inside joke when I was in junior high school, uh, a country I made up. And I just started writing funny stories set in this kingdom and have struck a number of coins and tokens and medals to illustrate the short stories. It's only the extra ones that actually can get sold when people go to... Attend my stand-up routine as the King of Br- Romania. I hand them out for free.
2: Yes, but that speaks to an area of the the hobby that's always fascinated me. When it comes to world coins, is the number of fantasy nations, micro nations. You know, Sealand is a legitimate physical space and place. And there's a story of these this family that went and claimed it, and they issued their own coins. and And that's just one of the. You know, the many, that's a real place. Yours is something that exists up up here, as I point right. to my mind. Now,
3: Burmania is probably the oldest micronation based in the United States. We date to about 1974. With the advent of personal websites, there have now been a great many people creating micronations that simply exist on, on the web. The internet has really facilitated that hobby. And probably
2: besides Sealand, I think the other... A physical space, a physical place that's most notable is Hut River Province,
3: and Hut River Province is actually a very large entity.
2: Yeah, uh, down in Australia. Yes, and having
3: read a, a lot of the legal his, legal history of the Hut River Province, there's actually some pretty good argument that it's a legitimate country. Yeah. I, Australia I just, accidentally acknowledged it at one point and sort of regretted it.
2: Whoops. I, yeah, but I don't think the until the United Nations <clears> gives sanction or some other governing international body, is, but, but they have a, a plethora of coins. And just like oh, yes. Sealand, you know, your series is much more limited in scope.
3: Yes, we do not exist primarily to strike coins. We exist primarily to have parties and write funny stories and share those stories and
2: the listeners unfortunately aren't going to be able to have attended necessarily the the big event it's always on saturday night here in new york right and uh, usually there's baklava
3: if i recall yes it's that's a burmanian national dessert <clears throat> and and it doesn't get much better
2: than that i will say i love my donut plant donuts but and jenny's ice cream which isn't here in the city but anyway <laughs>
3: uh
2: and you are dressed sometimes Barbara is dressed and... and
3: yes, Her Majesty, Her Majesty usually comes in, in proper royal attire. I the come prince, in proper, will the prince be coming? Or? Um, he, he may be this year. This year we will be um, having an ennoblement and he will also be in, in pro- proper noble attire.
2: Wonderful. And and there are folks who have titles and is there the Burmanian oh, yes. passport or...
3: <laughs> but there's actually... A, um, people can visit the Royal Burmanian English Language website. May I give it? Sure, yeah. www.burmania.com. Dot com. Uh, I'm sorry. Dot com is my business. Dot 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 org. org. Dot org is the kingdom.
2: Yeah. You put a lot of these or all these stories down there. No, the
3: stories are actually... Not on the website. Uh, they will be published in book form within the next six months or so.
2: Okay. I, I seem to recall seeing some before, but I guess I was looking they're Probably elsewhere. in print. Yes. I, yeah. I
3: might have handed out a story yes, or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But every, always, every, every year there's a new story. I'm sure there's a rich Burmanian oral tradition as well. Um, oh, fundamentally. <laughs>
1: That's
3: great. You, you you do need a ritual tradition when you've got a company named after a plywood a, com- a country rather named after a plywood lawn ornament. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I think on that note, uh, unless there's anything to add, is you know we've we've covered a lot of ground. as you know talking about all the cool stuff. Speaking for myself, I was introduced to numismatics the traditional way, and. Mm found u.s stuff i mean i can remember a time when i was like oh world stuff who cares you know i want to look at u.s stuff but i got to coin world and was you know get to write about world stuff and find it so much more enriching to learn all these stories to learn the history and you know i love america but you can find all these great things out there, outside of our borders. And uh, it really has changed my life.
3: Yeah. I see civilization as this nice warm blanket that we're embraced by and coins help us find our place inside that, you know, warm blanket of civilization.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you again for the time. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. Hail, hail, Burmania. That was our interview with Alan Berman, recorded at the New York International Numismatic Convention. We thank the show host for allowing us to do that. And we thank Alan for taking the time to step away from the bourse and talk to us at the show. We also should thank you, the listener. Right, Chris?
1: Yep, for, for tuning in uh, every week or, or at least whenever you, you get the chance. Hey,
2: you can binge oh. these just like you can Netflix. You know, you can have a Netflix <laughs> yeah. marathon. You can have a CoinRoll podcast marathon. We won't judge. I mean,
1: you know, binging BoJack Horseman, binging this show. I mean, I think people could be forgiven if they opted for certain Netflix series. But for everyone who listens, uh, we really do appreciate it. And if you'd like to support us, if you find the work that we're doing in the podcast that we're putting out uh, helpful, entertaining or informative or any of the above, please uh, remember to keep on listening every week and subscribe on whatever channel you get your podcasts. Every listen, every, uh, every comment we get, every email we get, and every subscription, you know, those are all helpful and meaningful to us. So please, please consider subscribing if you haven't already. And
0: until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at slash CoinWorld or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to CoinWorld.com and click on Free Newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld podcast was brought to you by the CoinWorld Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, Visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.